God loves you. Do you believe it? God loves you. Perhaps you do believe it. Perhaps you believe part of it. Maybe there's a particular aspect of that three-word sentence that trips you up. Perhaps it's the name God. You can imagine, perhaps, the creator God, the one that brought all things into being, the one that put the planets in their courses, the one that created the rhythm of time that we live in every day, the sun rising and its setting, the creator God that brings fruit from the earth that we enjoy every day, some of it straight off the plant at this time of year. Perhaps, though, a challenge in understanding God is in God the Son, the one who came down and lived in a very specific time and space, the one who had flesh as we have flesh, the one who interacted with humans because he was human. We see that challenge in the gospel appointed for today, which immediately follows what was read. You get the whole scope of Jesus' teaching. Jesus has declared himself the bread of life, and the devoutly religious that hear him challenge that assumption. Don't we know his father? Don't we know his parents? Don't we know the home in which he grew up? How can this one, this man, claim to be one with the father? He is made of what we are made of, bones, muscles, flesh. And they are challenged by the imagining that this one, Jesus, is part of God. C.S. Lewis said this very profoundly in one little sentence. Every idea of God we form, God must, in mercy, shatter. Every idea of God we form, God must, in mercy, shatter. God was shattering the certainty of the idea that the devoutly religious had of who God is and was and will be. That's what we see challenged in our gospel lesson for today. We might find ourselves saying some of the same words that the religiously devout said in our gospel lesson when we consider God the Holy Spirit. We might find ourselves saying, is this really God acting in life? Or is it just coincidence? Or physics? Or science? Or happenstance? Or the results of my good effort? We are challenged by who God is because God goes beyond our imagination. And so whatever idea of God we form, God must, in mercy, shatter. Maybe you're comfortable with that. God continuing to be bigger than what your finite mind will allow. So maybe you get tripped up on the word love. Love is so often thought of as a feeling, and feelings are nouns. But love is a verb. God loves you. 
The verb can be active or it can be passive, but it is a verb, not a noun. God demonstrated God's love for us both actively and passively and continues to demonstrate his love for us actively and passively. We see it in the active nature of him coming in among us into time and space as Christ. That was an action. We see it in his passion as well, the passive demonstration of love, when he allowed the events that unfolded in what we now know as his last week. He allowed them to carry him in order that he might demonstrate his love. God loves us. God loves you, actively and passively. Richard Rohr says this well, I believe, in the following words. Jesus, as the victim, did it right. He left no victims. He didn't blame anyone. He offers freedom, joy, forgiveness. He offers us today spiritual transformation to love the just and the unjust. On the cross, he stretched out his arms. He is holding all things together until it becomes one. Jesus reveals himself as the forgiving victim, and he calls us to share the fate of God for the life of the world. We are chosen. We are called to bear the mystery of God, and instead of accusing, judging, or fixing others, we are asked to love. This is the love that is now. This is the love that is near. This is the love that is enough. My trust is in this life, Rohr says. God living in me. A non-blaming love that refuses retaliation and consents to transformation making our anxieties, our fears, and our inauthenticity forever altered. Love bears all things. Maybe, though, you're familiar with that. And so perhaps where you might get tripped up in this one simple sentence, God loves you, is in the personal nature of God's love. You Put your name in the blank. God loves you. It is difficult to fathom that this God who is beyond our imagination, this God who is active and passive, but at least constant in his love for us, loves me. Put your name in the blank. We see this throughout scripture. John's gospel is filled with examples of people whose lives have been changed by the love that God does, both actively and passively. But John's gospel is not the only place where we read these stories. In fact, in our lessons today, we see the prophet Elijah demonstrate the same point. Let me tell you the context of this exhausted prophet that we see wishing to be dead. 
This is the prophet Elijah, a prophet to Israel. He lived in Israel, a kingdom at the time. The, kings were, the king was Ahab, the queen was Jezebel, and people had forgotten who God was, who God was in their life. Elijah was a prophet sent to remind the people of who God was, who God is. Prior to what we've read this morning, he challenges the prophets of Baal to call down fire on the altar so that those who witness it might know who is the living God, the living God, not some figure, not some drawing, not some idea, the living God. In this pluralist society, Baal, people, the worshipers of Baal were given footing. And Elijah was going to challenge their belief. The Israelites were gathered around the altar. And Elijah says, you should read this story, go back to 1 Kings 19. Elijah says to them, build an altar. Call down fire. Cry out to Baal. Do whatever you need to do to get Baal to hear you and to send fire upon the altar. And as you read this story, the day goes on, the hours pass by. It ends with the prophets of Baal cutting themselves as a plea to the God to send down fire. Finally, they finish. And Elijah takes his turn. He builds an altar he digs a ditch around it, and he pours water on the altar. He soaks it so that water is surrounding the altar. And he cries out to the living God to send down fire. And God does. And in that moment, the Israelites recognize that their God is a living God among them, living, loving them, actively and passively, all for their highest good. And their hearts are changed. Word gets back to the king and to the queen about the acts of the prophet Elijah. And it is thought to be an affront on this civil, civic leadership. The king and the queen take it personally. How dare they challenge how dare Elijah challenge what they have declared in their kingdom? That Baal could be worshipped alongside all other gods. And so the hunt is on for Elijah. He runs south. I think it's a day's journey. And at that point, he leaves his servant and he runs still further south. And that's where our story picks up today. He falls down exhausted discouraged that even in this act of the living God, he is, it, is being threatened, hunted down. And so he asks that he can just die. He's no better than his ancestors, he says. Nothing will ever change. And it is that point that he lays his head down, falls asleep, and an angel comes to him and directs him to eat whether this is a dream or not doesn't really matter because it is true to him that he is being sustained by God. He eats, he drinks, and again returns to sleep. 
Again, an angel of the Lord comes to him and directs him to eat and to drink. He does so again and realizes that it is God who sustains him. So much so that he goes on for 40 days and 40 nights. A symbol of the fullness of time. God has sustained him for all time. God loves you. Put your name in the blank. I had a conversation with a friend just a couple of days ago who shared with me her discovery of this truth. And she shared it with me carefully because for the longest time she wasn't quite sure. I would love to tell you her story, but it's her story. I will tell you this. She had been hearing from people about how God loves you and frequently put it aside because it just didn't make sense. But there have been occasions in the very recent weeks where God has given her just what she needed right when she needed it. And that's what she was telling me about. Is it really true? God loves me? I would love to tell you her story, partly because I, I feel like you might get tired of hearing mine. But out of respect, I'll tell you mine. Respect for her, I'll tell you mine. Not respect for you, I'm sorry. You're going to have to hear another one of my stories. <laughs> this has some hilarity in it because life does have some of that in it. Several years ago, quite a while ago actually, about a decade ago, Michael and I went on a camping trip with our then three children. Gabe was seven, Vivian was five, and Beatrice was two. We decided to go to West Virginia because I don't know if you've been through that state, but it is gorgeous, lush and green all over those mountains, and we wanted to be in it. We wanted to put ourselves in the middle of all that beauty. And so we decided to tent camp in West Virginia. We loaded up our Ford Taurus wagon, three car seats lined up in the middle, and in the back it was stuffed full of the cooler and the tents and the pillows and the sleeping bags. We had a car top carrier on top for I don't know what, but it seemed necessary. And then on the back we had strapped a couple of little kid bikes, and we set out for West Virginia. The campground was beautiful lush and green, moss covered, all the places where there weren't trees. Ferns grew up all over the place. It was beautiful. And we set up our camp. The first night, it rained. The rain leaked in something, I don't know, but it meant that there was laundry to be done on that first day. And the second night, it rained. How it got in again, I don't know. But we decided to rejigger our tarp system, which we thought was foolproof to begin with, did the laundry. Unfortunately, the wood was now soaked because the first night it rained on it, we left it out so it would dry, but the second night it rained on it again, so not even a campfire could be had. On the third night when it rained, we noticed around us that everyone was in a camper. 
We thought, well, fancy that. This is how people camp in West Virginia, not in a tent. <laughs> they drive their house in there, or they pull their house in there, and they set it up, and they put their wood underneath it so it will stay dry all the other times when it's not raining. And so we made peace with the fact that we were going to be soggy the rest of the week, and that any fire that we attempted, and we did attempt, would be smoky. When we were near the end of the trip, we decided to leave a day early to head down to Cass, West Virginia, a little town that was built around the logging industry. It had a really neat open train that was fueled by coal and had switchbacks up the mountain, and it still traversed the mountain at least once a day for people like us who wanted to come and see. It was built when the logging industry was alive and well, and that's how the loggers made it up this steep mountain. And all the houses in the neighborhood were built like you would imagine in that period of our history when you were looking to put a lot of people to work. There were single little homes side by side. It was a very neat town. And it was on our list of things to do that week. And so we decided to leave a day early and to stay in a hotel because we still needed to travel on for a whole nother day. And we decided that what we would do is when we got to Cass, we would do the laundry. And that would set us in motion for the second half or the second portion of our trip. So we wound through the mountains of West Virginia and noted that we passed one hotel and then traveled on still another distance and passed another as we neared Cass. We passed the two hotels that we did pass because they were still a great distance from Cass and to get on the train the next morning we had to get up early with our three little people and we wanted to be as close to the train as we possibly could. And so we got into Cass and immediately found ourselves outside of Cass. Cass is about this big, maybe a block or two long. So we turned around and went to the tourist center to find out where it is that we should stay and to find out where the laundromat was because it, wasn't ob it obviously wasn't on the main street in which we drove. The tourist guide answered our questions and she said, well, there are two hotels this way and this way. And we said, we passed those. And she said, well, there's one another hotel out of town over there. And we said, okay. She said, there's also a ski resort that is very near here, probably the closest of all of these options, but it's $90 a night. She didn't use the word but, but that's how it sounded in our ears. We just want a place to sleep. We didn't want to pay $90 a night, plus we needed a laundromat. It was about four in the afternoon when we finally accepted her suggestion to go to the hotel outside of town. She had called ahead to reserve a room for us because there was a biker convention happening in that region and most all of the rooms were full. As we headed out of town, again this is around four in the afternoon, we passed a homemade billboard that said Joe's Cabins with an arrow. Now Michael loves a cabin. He loves a cabin. And he said, what if we turn down there and see, maybe we could stay there. Indeed, it was closer than any of the options that we had. And so, seemed like a fine idea. It was only four in the afternoon and we went down that curvy road and curvy and curvy and curvy and curvy and hadn't yet seen another sign for Joe's Cabins. So we decided that we should turn around. And we came to a spot that was a cluster of houses. As if you know farm communities, you will recognize this description. One of those clusters that's built up over the generations. So the parents who own the farm are here, and they built these houses for their children, 
who are also nearby because the land goes on for a long way. And at least this way they can share among them living. It was one little group like that. And Michael made a three-point turn backing into kind of a spot that had, was like for tractors and things, and then went forward, but went forward a little too far, and the wheels fell in the big ravine that was meant for drainage, and our Ford Taurus, with our three kids in the middle, filled with stuff in the back, with two little bikes strapped on, and a car top carrier, was stuck. Well, we had feelings about that, and opinions about that. <laughs> Michael said, I can push this, just put it in reverse and I'll just push it out. I said, well, maybe we should get the kids out of the car. I don't know, they didn't really lighten the load. Together, maybe they weighed 110 pounds, all three of them. But we got them out of the car, it seemed the responsible things to do. We put them up on the lawn of the house that was above this big drainage ditch. And Michael got out to push and I to reverse, but that didn't help. So I suggested that he go up to that house and ask for help. We had to have a conversation about that. <laughs> but he decided to go up, and I know at least one of our kids went with him to that front door and knocked to see if these people could help us. They came out, and the first thing they did was laugh, and then they said, yes, we can help you. Let me call my brother. He's got the tractor or the truck or whatever it is with the chain. This wasn't the first time they'd helped people in this kind of situation. He'd be here in a few minutes. And as we stayed there for some time, we got in conversation with them, and they asked where we were heading, and Michael said to Joe's cabins, they said, oh, yeah, I know Joe. Oh, yeah, that's right, he does have cabins. That, yeah, they're further on down the way, that's right. They said, let me call him and see if... He has a room for you tonight, because as you see, it was getting close to five o'clock already. People were going to want dinner, and we still had laundry to do, and we had an early train to catch in the next morning. So this woman called ahead. She called Joe, and he said, the cabin's booked for the weekend, but it's Thursday night, and it's open. Wow. We finished, assured that we didn't have to still make a further trek. The brother came with his truck and his big chain with the hook. He said to Michael, you promise not to sue me if I do anything to your car? <laughs> Michael said, yes. He said, okay. And he hooked it up and he pulled it out. And we headed down that curvy road to Joe's cabin. When we got there, it was a nice cabin. It had air conditioning. It had cable TV. We didn't have cable TV at that time in our lives. It had laundry. It had horses down the way. It had a cat. It had kittens. It was about the best place we could imagine all five of us staying. We had our dinner, canned spaghetti with noodles. Went to bed, did the laundry. The next day had a great day. As we headed out, I remember the sun coming through that early morning mist as we made our way to the train. I said, let us remember, we have got to remember that God provides for us. Let this be a story we remember that God provides for us. How quickly we forget 
whether it be in what seems like a silly scenario of our lives but wasn't at the time, or whether it be in pain and agony, let us remember that God provides for us because God loves us. Yes, humankind, but God loves you. Put your name in the blank. It is so important that we remember this because when we remember, we begin to look for how it is that God provides for us. When Elijah went into the wilderness, he was not expecting to find a cake or water or even rest. The wilderness is barren and dangerous in its lack of natural provisions. But God provided for him. We see this in the scriptures time and time again. And when we remember it, we become part of that transforming love that Richard Rohr talks about. We are changed and we begin to see how we can change the world around us because God is ready to do it. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he reminds us of this again and again, that God loves us. He says, you know, in his letter to the Romans, he says, God loves us so much that he died for us even while we were sinners. We know about noble dying, dying for noble people, but God loves us so much that God died for us as we are. And that changes everything. One of his examples is in his letter to the Ephesians when he talks about thieves. He says, thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Bishop Paul Marshall reflects on this instruction of Paul and says to us, hearers, that's us, hearers will perhaps be startled to note that here honesty and hard work are not recommended to preserve the sanctity of private property. Former thieves are to invest their time and energy in self-support so that they may be in a position to join the community's care for the destitute. The work ethic itself is transformed into participation in Christ's ministry. When we remember that God loves us, when you remember that God loves you, put your name in the blank, you will begin to see that God loves all. And you will begin to see how God is loving all. Amen.